0: Welcome to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. Every week, Josh will teach you ways to help manage, risk, and protect your retirement income in the new economy. The primary focus at Aptus Wealth is to provide flexible planning strategies that can efficiently achieve your long term retirement goals.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you're having a great weekend. We know you have a lot of choices out there, we, so we appreciate you spending your time with us. Great news, Josh. Music to my ears. IRS is extending the tax deadline. Is, I, I can't imagine there's anyone that's not happy about that.
2: I don't think anybody's ever in a particular hurry to have to settle up with the government <laughs> as far as their taxes go. But, uh, yeah, we got about another month. So it gives you a little bit of extra time to make IRA contributions, et cetera, if that's something you want to do, a little bit more time to save up to boost that contribution. So that's a good thing.
1: Are the feds really that backed up or why we know COVID last year was pushed back, but same reason for this year?
2: Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. One, uh, I think the stimulus uh, programs, the $1.9 trillion stimulus plan was large in part uh, shouldered by the IRS to distribute those checks. So that slowed down their ability to process the early filing tax returns. And then number two, I think a, a lot of people were you know, reaching out and saying, uh, and by people I mean you know, CPAs, et cetera, saying with the new confines of the way that we operate, meaning some clients aren't willing to come into the office, we're doing Zoom meetings, we're doing et cetera, that our deficiencies are down and we need a little bit more time to get everybody through the funnel. So I think it was kind of a combination between the preparers, uh, citizens, and the IRS all going, Makes sense, which quite frankly, Diane, I've always struggled with why there's one filing day per year and why there isn't some sort of staggered filing day. If you think about a CPA or a tax preparer, and and, uh, I owned a tax preparation company for a number of years, better part of a decade, you're trying to get everybody done and making the lion's share of your income in a couple month window. I mean, it's just mad chaos for two months and then pretty chilled for the rest of the year. I think it makes way more sense to come up with some other method, whether it's you know, certain people file and based upon your age or your name or who knows. But to have it all hit on one day just seems a little preposterous, but that's out of my pay grade.
1: Let's go alphabetically, and I'll change my name to a last name that starts with Z.
2: <laughs> but then, you know, then there's going to be a mad scramble on whatever day that is, I suppose. But at least it would spread it out yeah. amongst the, the total population, right?
1: Right. So business taxes then or business filings then are normally filed in October. We can hope that that will be extended as
2: well. Uh, I would. You're talking about extensions. And I would assume that it will be extended, but I don't know, to be honest. And, and you know, that kind of brings back to... Okay, so 1099s have to be out by, uh, you know, February, and then uh, K-1s have to be out by March. And then and, and there just constantly seems to be this glut backing up. And, you know, some corporations will, you know, they, their fiscal year will end in June, and they, they try and spread that out as well so they're not slammed throughout the year. I just don't see why uh, we can't do that on a larger scale. But, again, uh, I don't focus a tremendous amount of time trying to figure out the IRS filing program problem. But uh, hopefully, at some point in our future, they'll come up with a better solution. But at least for this year, we have, a, we have a month to delay.
1: Does that affect the economy at all with the stimulus package, another one being approved? I mean, doesn't the government need taxes more quick in order to help our financial situation nationally?
2: Well, you would think that would be the case. But it seems like, uh, at least with uh, this administration and, quite frankly, previous administrations, when we need more money, we just tend to print it. And I think that brings me to a, an interesting you know, kind of topic of conversation. I had this conversation uh, with Bruce earlier uh, on Monday this week, and he was talking about, you know, the fear of, uh, and this is kind of an interesting segue, but the fear of tech stocks. And this leans, this lens, by the way, the answer that I'm going to give you uh, has to do with the government and stimulus packages and uh, the printing of money, etc. But what we're seeing is these tech stocks just going crazy. You know, if you look at last year, uh, the S&P 500 was up about 18%, but the lion's share of that was 6 companies, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Netflix and Google. The other 494 companies essentially did low single digits. So the question that Bruce posed to me is why is that? Is that sustainable? And there's a couple of reasons, and one of them is, in fact, these stimulus packages and is low interest rates. But without diving too deep into the weeds, let's talk about a time that reminds me or is very reminiscent of what's happening today. And that was back in 1999. If you look at 1999, there were 10 stocks that generated the lion's share of the return. I believe it was over 90% if I'm going off of memory here, of the S&P 500. One of them, ironically, was Microsoft. What's interesting, and first let me give a disclaimer, does this mean that I think Microsoft is a bad company? No, of course not. Microsoft is a great company. Obviously just set a record last year. But then the dot-com bubble burst in 2000, 2001, 2002. And people who were holding Microsoft saying, man, I've really knocked the cover off the ball with this stock. I'm the best stock picker on the planet. It was a gross stock at the time. It's kind of shifting into dividend category these days. But I'm going to be able to retire comfortably because I'm making 30% rates of return every single year. Well, the bubble did burst back in 2000, 2001, 2002. And it took 15 years plus for Microsoft to get back to even. So the reason I bring this up is as the, as the market starts to change and interest rates potentially start to rise, stimulus packages start to slow, which eventually, I don't know what that timeline looks like, but eventually that will have to occur. It's just a natural evolution of the economy. When that happens, these tech stocks uh, will not fare as well and typically, or at least historically, there will be a drive back to value. And I bring all this up not to talk uh, nerd speak about, you know, the intrinsic value of stocks and doing the correct, uh, you know, quantification of how to pick a stock. But I think it's important to note that what's been happening lately is you could literally throw a dart at a dartboard. And as long as you hit a growth stock, you've done tremendously well to the tune of, you know, multiple double digits, some stocks doing 60, 70, 80 percent. But over the last 20 years, the S&P 500 has averaged less than seven. So if you're building your retirement income plan based upon your portfolio continuing to earn these gigantic rates of return, not only are you going to have probably a harsh uh, reality check in the way that it's not going to generate 30%, et cetera, but there could be the potential like that happened back in 2000, 2001, 2002, you could have this retraction back to the mean. And people who have become accustomed to earning these really high rates of return, thinking they're incredibly smart, picking the right stocks all the time, if that slinkies back, it could thwart people's retirement dreams and postpone your retirement. So I know this is a far reach from talking about the stimulus packages and the government wanting money. But I think it's important to note that that does have an effect. And that's what's significantly driving some of these growth stocks as well. So be cautious as you're looking at your retirement plan. Make sure you get your ducks in a row so that you're not one of those people that was left holding the bag like several people were back in 2001, 2002 and had to postpone their retirement because they were way overweighted and very aggressive stuff.
1: Doesn't everybody mostly understand, though, that it's cyclical and that we're, that the, the bull market is going to
2: change into a bear market at some point? I think we're all very keenly aware that it's going to happen, but I think we also are very much affected by fear and greed. And right now that is definitely greed. Um, And I don't fault anybody for that. We're all subject to it, right? I mean, it's hard to get off that ride when you're seeing it go up and you're convinced the longer that that ride goes in the positive direction for you, that either the ride's got a lot longer to go or you'll know when it's time to do the right thing. And the reality is uh, we all know that timing doesn't work. It never does unless we get lucky, quite frankly. And we're seeing some of the best money managers in the world drastically underperforming the overall stock market. And you could argue, well, that just, shows, that just goes to show you that you know they're not that smart. But yet people will say that on one tone, that a guy like Ray Dalio, who has Bridgewater Associates, who has literally hundreds of employees that all have Harvard degrees and they're doing quantifiable analytics, et cetera, that somehow they're missing the ball and you, Joe... Uh, who have no market experience whatsoever, but know a guy who knows a guy who said that XYZ stock was a good choice, somehow have it figured out because you got lucky. And and again, I'm not knocking anybody for taking chances or, or trying to do things on their own. I'm just saying be very cautious because when you think you know, uh, history has repeated itself over and over and over again, that it's very difficult when you're in the midst of it, and you will get hurt more than likely in the long run.
1: Are these type of people listening to their financial advisors? Do they have it? Are they trying to do this all on their own? I'm just trying to find out what role the advisor um, plays. Let's say your client calls you and says, "Let's do this. I want to do this," and it's your fiduciary responsibility to explain that this is cyclical. It could you relay the advice that you just gave us, but at the end of the day, do you have to listen to your client and you know he's making these drastic moves?
2: Uh, That's a a very interesting insight in that you're absolutely right. It happens all the time. When the market is doing poorly and we're beating the market, uh, we're everybody's hero. Everybody's very excited that we were able to thwart some of the downside risk, that we were doing exactly what we said. Our, Our objective is to consistently hit singles, doubles, triples, avoid strikeouts, and quite frankly, strikeouts. Uh, and home runs kind of go hand in hand. So our objective is to be consistent, steady in the long run, mitigate risk on the downturn. So when it goes down, everybody's very, very happy. When the market's going up 80, 90, 100 percent, and we're only doing, you know, 50 or 60 because we are playing a position of defense as well, um, people have a hard time with that, Diane. People will say, you know, hey, I, I own XYZ stock and I'm beating you. I, I think that uh, I should be doing this. So why don't you do this, this and that? And I do have a fiduciary responsibility, and I also do have a very long tenure in this space. So I can pragmatically look at uh, what's happening in a very non emotional way and make those decisions. So oftentimes, what I will do for folks who want to do that, you know, they say, I, you got to buy me X. I will help them set up their own brokerage account, TD Meritrade, Schwab, wherever, and say, here, here's, you know, here's your money, go have at it. But from a fiduciary perspective, I cannot in good conscience go out on a limb like that and start picking these ancillary stocks because you have a you just have an idea. I have to justify the positions that we're selecting based upon a long-term time-tested approach that I can be very comfortable you can be relying on in the long run.
1: So you tell them to kind of play or 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 do it themselves in a, in, in an account with money that they can't afford to lose.
2: Correct. Yeah. And Warren Buffett has a very famous quote. He says, never invest money in the stock market that you can't afford to lose. Now, I think he's trying to illustrate a, a perspective there, uh, not a reality. I mean, nobody goes and puts any money in the stock market that they're, they think is gambling. But to the same token, I think we could all say that if we picked you know, 50 blue chip company stocks, we'd feel that while we're not exactly sure what volatility is going to be, uh, because we're kind of just randomly picking them, we'd be pretty sure that you know, the Walmarts, Johnson & Johnsons, et cetera, will be around 30, 40 years from now, and I'll feel comfortable holding those for a long period of time. Picking, uh, you know, GameStop stock, which, you know, we, we've all been through that roller coaster ride. I don't think that anybody that's doing that really feels comfortable that that's a long-term approach. What they feel comfortable about is, I've been watching the chart, and it's down, and I think I can play this short-term run on the way up and then get out and time it. While you might be absolutely right, you also might be absolutely wrong. So that is, in my opinion, not much different than gambling and I can't be a part of gambling with your retirement portfolio.
1: Josh, you mentioned Bruce Hooley. I just want to let uh, everyone know, for those that don't know, that you join Bruce every Monday at 6 p.m. on 98.9 The Answer for Money Mondays. If you miss it, the recording is always at com To schedule an appointment with Josh, the phone number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. You're listening to the Aptis Retirement Blueprint Show, with Josh Pick more when we come back.
0: We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer.
3: 7,300, or visit aptuswealth.com. Thanks for listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh
0: Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300.
1: Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. Josh, is it time to rethink the 60-40 portfolio approach? 60% 60% equities, 40% bonds.
2: 60-40, you're right. It's 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And historically speaking, the you know common perception of the Academy of Smart People, if you want to say, uh, use this as what they call the all-weather portfolio. And the theory is based upon a lot of research studies. But ultimately, what that portfolio said was if you have a 60-40 portfolio and you withdraw no more than 4% of your portfolio and you have a 25-year retirement, so you retire at 65, you live to age 90... And inflation does not exceed three percent. That you will be able to match that inflation and never run out of money, and the impact of volatility or your, you know, stocks bouncing around will not knock you off course. And the reason that that volatility would be somewhat minimized or mitigated is because you have forty percent of your money in bonds, which tend to go in opposite directions of stocks. Meaning when stocks go down, bonds tend to do well. But when stocks go up, bonds typically still continue to do well, just not at the same trajectory as stocks. And historically speaking, we believe that stocks will earn somewhere in that three to six range uh, average annual rate of return, whereas stocks we're hoping do more like seven, eight percent over time. The problem with that is bonds are inversely proportional to interest rates. And that's an important, important note. And people say, yeah, but uh, we've had an, a lot of interest rate fluctuations over the last, you know, twenty, thirty, forty years, and bonds have still fared very well. Uh, and oftentimes, uh, people will point to two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and bonds were for sure your saving grace during that time period when we had the financial housing crisis. If you had money in bonds, it prevented or at least protected you from a lot of volatility. And I agree with all of those things, Diane. However, if we recognize that bonds are inversely proportional to interest rates, and we also recognize that interest rates are the lowest they've been since the Great Depression, then interest rates don't have too many directions to go, but either remain the same or go up. And if they remain the same, that means your bonds that you're holding are earning basically nothing, and they will continue to earn basically nothing. If interest rates go up, that's not good. And if interest rates go down, then you might be able to win in the bond game. However, How far can they go down when we're already basically, you know, at the bottom? So knowing that, you could argue then that bonds are, while they add stability, just like a checking account does, they're also kind of the anchor behind your retirement boat, And that now I only have 60% of my money in the market, and my other 40% is effectively earning nothing. And because of that, there's been a lot of research or a lot of, you know, really smart folks that people respect that go on, you know, television shows, et cetera, and say, uh, or researchers out of you know the Newark Retirement Institute or the American College and saying, uh, maybe that's not so much the case. Maybe if you're going to have a 60-40 uh, stock-to-bond portfolio, maybe it's 3.5% withdrawal rate. I saw the Wall Street Journal a while back said, maybe it's the death of the 4%. That was the big headline. So the question is, how in the world do we invest our money with the volatility of the market being where it is with the fact that we're in the longest bull run in the history of the stock market. I have some trepidation or some apprehension about leaving all my money in there because that seems like a scary place. But if I put it in bonds, I might as well just put it under my mattress because it's not earning any money. But at the same time, we have these stimulus packages where the government's printing amounts of money that we've never seen before, and inflation really is concerning to me. So what do I do? I don't want to play the volatility game. I don't want to play the zero interest rate game because that won't thwart the fact that I'm really concerned about inflation. And the answer is we have to rethink the 60-40 portfolio. There are some good things. One, inflation has not historically been very high. Two, interest rates are in fact low, which helps our purchasing power in other categories. But what are some other asset classes that we could take a look at that might benefit us in the long run? And there's a lot of them, Diane, uh, from private placements to potential real estate to uh, deferred annuity contracts, index annuity contracts, living benefits, etc. So there's a lot of other options. But the problem is that 60-40 portfolio has worked so well for so long that we really haven't spent a lot of time looking at all these other options. And the reason it's worked so well for so long is because, one, we've been in the longest bull run in the history of the stock market. And two, interest rates have done nothing, in the long-term track record at least, but go down for the last 40 years. So it's been a bull run in the bond market for the last 40 years. So we have great market performance in stocks, and we have great market performance in bonds, but it does not appear like that's going to be consistent moving forward. So I think we need to start reevaluating and opening our eyes and opening up our minds to alternatives that may suit us better over the next 10 or 20 years, particularly if you're retiring very quickly or very soon, or you're already in retirement and you're looking to drive income. It's about income. It's not about uh, necessarily... Uh, pure rate of return as much as it about, it's about volatility control and income.
1: And how often should people be looking at this? Like, should they, they be looking at this and reevaluating right now? I mean, human nature, people want to kind of squeeze the last of it of the bull market as much as they can. And then if things start kind of going haywire and turning into a bear market, then they're like, OK, let's reevaluate. When's the best time to take a look at everything?
2: Well, obviously, there's no better time than the present. That's like saying, you know, I, I should really get back to the gym. When should I start? Well, tomorrow, uh, as soon as possible. This afternoon? Uh, yeah, this afternoon, right? When should I start eating better? Well, right after I eat this big pile of cheesecake. I, I get it. I mean, it's always, it's not something that's exciting. Typically, this is the topic that gets pushed to the back of the burner uh, behind making sure that I, you know, keep my, a stable job, that I take care of my family, et cetera. But this is part of taking care of your family, and it's part of, part of taking care of your future. So I think it is important to do sooner rather than later. That said, uh, you're right. We talked about timing uh, earlier in the show today. And that timing on, you know, I, I feel like I can squeeze more out of the market. Maybe you can. Maybe you can't. All I can tell you is your timing isn't going to be perfect, no matter what, I assure you. If it is, it's pure and utter happenstance and luck. So it doesn't mean that you pull all of your money out of the market, which is some of the stuff that I'm hearing as of late, Diane, Either I, want to, I should be more in the market or I should be entirely out. And the answer is always somewhere in the middle. So I think you know, if you're within 5 or 10 years of retirement or you're in retirement, there is no better time than now to look to see how much we can squeeze in the way of either future income or current income to improve your life.
1: You're listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your own planning session to learn new strategies to manage risk, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Josh, I wanted to switch the topic to Medicare. It is a confusing topic. Let's try and break that down for listeners. Let's start. What age can you enroll uh, in Medicare?
2: Yeah, so everybody has to enroll at 65, now I say everybody has to enroll at 65. That does not necessarily mean that you have to uh, use Medicare when you're 65. If you're still working for your employer and you qualify for your employer qualifies for the deferral period, which I believe is your employer has more than 20 employees, and there's a couple other caveats in there, then you don't have to go on Medicare if you're still working. But that said, everybody is eligible and has to apply for Medicare at age 65. Uh, and you're absolutely right. It is confusing. If you are 65 or nearing 65 and you're listening, you're probably nodding your head going, the amount of information that I'm receiving in my mailbox and the amount of emails that I'm getting is overwhelming. And it seems like every email or every piece of literature that I receive is all telling me that it's you know, completely overwhelming. And this particular brochure says they're the only ones that knows how to, to help me navigate that, that, uh, that labyrinth of, of uh, Medicare. You're going to start getting smashed with advertisements. As you get close to age 65, it's very normal. It's not quite that complicated. So let's go over the basics. Uh, I'm not by no means a Medicare expert. I'm not the person that's going to help you pick the perfect supplement, but I can at least tell you how the process works and how to navigate the process. So number one, Medicare Part A. That is your hospitalization, meaning that when you turn 65 and older, if you go on Medicare and you go to the hospital, it will be covered by Medicare Part A. Medicare Part A is free to everyone that's 65 and older. It does not cost you anything. Medicare Part B covers your doctor's visits. So you go to the doctor. They are going to uh, charge your Medicare Part B. Everybody has to pay for Medicare Part B. Depending upon how much income you make, that determines how much your Medicare Part B costs. But for most people, uh, as of 2021, it's going to cost you $148.50. So out of your Social Security check, when you start collecting, $148.50 will be withdrawn from that to cover your Medicare Part B. The only other thing that you're required to get is Medicare Part D. And Medicare Part D is your prescription drug. There is a website you go to, uh, Medicare Part D, just Google that. It'll take you to the government website, and you can search to see which program of Part D is best for you. So if you take no prescription drugs whatsoever, you can get a very inexpensive plan. If you're on a litany of prescription drugs, then you may want to get a more robust plan. But obviously that robust plan may help you, but it's more expensive. You have to get Part D. If you do not, by the, to- by the appropriate time when you are required, then you can be penalized for the rest of your life off of that. So very important that you go and get it. Now, most people, beyond what I just said, so you get your Part A, Part B, Part D, will get some form of a supplement, and that supplement fills all the gaps. So if you want to kind of correlate it back to uh, your health plan that you probably have through your employer today, you'll probably hear things like, I have an 80-20 plan, or my deductible is $2,500. Well, Medicare is no different. Medicare will say, we will cover 100% of your ho- your hospital stay, your hotel stay. Wouldn't that be nice? Your hospital stay after you pay this amount of money. Or we will pay up to this amount of money, and then after that, you're responsible for it. Well, then they used to be called Medigap plans. Now they're called Medicare supplements. That fills those gaps. And the Medicare supplements are all lab- They're kind of labeled with additional letters. So you have Part F, Part G, Part... And it's important to note, Diane, that all of these parts and pieces, the Part F, I don't care if you go with Humana or Aetna or Blue Cross Blue Shield or or whomever. Part F is Part F is Part F. Everybody's plan's the same. It's just a matter of how much that particular company charges you for that plan. But it is regulated by the federal government that these plans provide X benefit. So you're just price shopping. Now, you can get a very robust plan that covers basically everything. So now you've turned your uh, medical expenses into almost a fixed expense. You know what it's going to cost you every month, but above and beyond that, you have little to no outlay. Or you can say, I want to take, I want to assume some of that risk because I'm I'm a relatively healthy person and I want my premiums to be low every month, and that's fine. The only other term that you'll hear often is Medicare Advantage plan. And all a Medicare Advantage plan is, is it combines everything that I just talked about into one. Now Medicare Advantage for the most part is an HMO style plan, meaning you have to go to particular doctors. Whereas a Medicare supplement for the most part is a PPO plan, which means you can, as long as that particular doctor takes Medicare, they will take your plan no matter where you are, no matter where you go. So it depends on how much freedom you want versus cost. And it depends on how much coverage you want versus premium. It's literally that simple. But it is overwhelming because there's a lot of choices. So you need to find somebody that can help you walk through that, which obviously we work with people out of my office and I can help you, you know, kind of head down that path. But that's the, that's the cliff notes on Medicare in general. I'm
1: still wondering what happened to Part C of it, but we're heading to break. The number to call Josh is 614-364-7300, 614-364-7300. More of the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick when we come back. We'll be
0: back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The
3: Answer. 7300 or visit AptisWealth.com. Thanks for listening to the Aptis
0: Retirement Blueprint radio show with Josh Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300.
1: Welcome back to the Aptis Retirement Blueprint show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. Josh, I just had a couple of questions. We were talking about Medicare. I wanted to know what is Part C because you said A, B, and we went to D, and F, is there a Part C? And you mentioned that if you don't uh, do the Part D, there you'll be penalized for the rest of your life. I want to ask you what that looks like.
2: Yeah, so let me take them in order. So one, there is no Part C, and uh, I have no idea why. Now, some people will call Medicare Advantage Part C because it kind of fills all the gaps between all of them. But there isn't technically no Part C. And then the penalty... I believe, and I'm shooting from the hip here, I believe is 10%. So if you look at the prescription drug plans and you say the average prescription drug plan is, you know, 20, 30, 40 bucks, you know, multiply that by 10%. That's a big difference over the remainder of your life. So make sure that you get into the plan uh, when you're supposed to and don't pay that penalty. Another question that we did not cover that comes up very often is how much is this all going to cost? I've heard horror stories about Medicare. You know, is it as bad as they say? I remember when I was a kid, everybody talked about, oh, you know, your grandparents are going on Medicare. They're really going to have, you know, crummy health insurance. And while that might have been true back then, I guess good and bad, uh, typical health insurance has gotten so bad (laughs) that Medicare is one of the best darn plans there is. So when you go on Medicare, you're probably going to find that cost of value is far better than anything you've probably experienced up to this point, unless you had a very, very rich plan where you were working. But in general, uh, and Medicare is handled by the county in which you live, so don't compare your Medicare costs to somebody who lives in you know, New Jersey or New York. It's going to be a different cost. In general, the people that I see, they're paying, you know, we said it was 148.50, dollars so let's say 150 bucks roughly for Medicare, Part B. Your prescription drug, let's say, is roughly $25, so you're at $175. You can get a very rich and robust Medicare supplement plan, for another $125. So plan on somewhere in that $300 or under per month being your total out of pocket medical expenses, and that will almost cover everything. I mean, your out of pocket potential, you know, you go have a hip replacement, a knee replacement, and it costs you $225. I mean, it, its it, there are really, really good plans. The real question is how long will they be able to continue the plans the way that they are today because they're just that good? And that's something we need to plan for as well. Thanks for clearing up that misconception
1: uh, that people have about Medicare, that it's actually poor quality. Let's talk about more uh, misconceptions, I guess, that people have about retirement that are actually hurting them
2: the most. Yeah, well, I saw a stat recently. um, I think it's pretty pertinent to to that question is, you know, one in four Americans think their actual retirement lifestyle aligns with what they thought it was going to be. In other words, unfortunately about three in four Americans don't believe that retirement is anything like they thought it was going to be. Now, fortunately, that study didn't say it was worse. It just said it didn't align. So let's hope that those three out of four people are saying it's way more awesome than they thought it was going to be when they started. But I think, you know, insert COVID into that mix, and there's a lot of reasons we could start to maybe hypothesize. Uh, For example, many people retire a lot sooner than they think they were going to which sounds like a great thing well awesome i get to retire sooner than i thought i was going to but usually it's not because of awesome reasons it's usually because um, the reasons are, are usually taking care of a family member that's ill and the retirement wasn't necessarily according to their financial plan but according to a necessity um, being displaced from jobs uh, so COVID, a lot of people were furloughed and anybody who's been you know laid off from a job they their you know, mid 60s, knows it's a little bit harder to find the next job at uh, that season of your life. Uh, so there's a lot of things that, that occur, have occurred uh, just due to COVID that have really kind of exacerbated this problem. But the other thing is, and it's the first question that I ask people when they walk into my office and say, I think I'm ready to retire, is what are you going to do? Now, if your dream of retirement is sitting around and watching television, then by all means, do it. But if you don't have a plan, Meaning, and I'm not talking about a financial plan, I'm talking about a plan on what you're going to do. Retirement can be depressing. And I've had that conversation many, many times. People think they're unhappy because of their job, or they're unhappy because of X. And as soon as I get that out of my life, then I will be happy. And unless you have a plan for fulfillment, and I know this sounds rather utopic, but unless you have a plan to fulfill what you're going to do that's going to give you purpose in life, retirement can be... A pretty significant letdown even if you have the financial wherewithal to do whatever you know if you think you're gonna you know travel nonstop for the rest of your life chances are that's not gonna play out so you can't buy that happiness for too long so I think you know the the common misconceptions that I see Diane without getting too long-winded are I'm gonna retire when I want if I don't save enough today I'll just start I'll just work longer is not a good plan because you might not have the option Uh, and if you don't have a plan to provide yourself with some sort of fulfillment in the way of, I'm going to do these things to make me happy, uh, I think it's going to be a, a, a long road to, to haul.
1: And I think most people think retirement, I just have to have enough saved. What are the big things that people don't consider, like long-term health insurance?
2: Yeah, yeah. I see that a lot of times with financial plans. And this is, I'm going to blame some of my cohorts in the industry you now oftentimes you if you 're listening to CNBC or whatever the financial news channel is that you 're listening to it 'll say "Make sure you have x amount of money. Uh, you need this big pot at the end of the rainbow, and then you 'll be fine but what they don 't do is plan for what if my spouse unfortunately dies much earlier than anticipated? What if I have to care for one of my uh, you know I have to care for one of my family members or I have to care for my spouse and that entails a long term care facility uh, et cetera, et cetera These are all kind of the uh, contingency plans that can have a dramatic impact. And I just wanted to give people an idea of how much
1: that could cost per year, just to hammer that point home about how important it is to have that.
2: Oh, for sure. And it, you know, it depends on where you live, obviously, but it is not uncommon at all for long-term care facilities to start bumping up to that, you know, $100,000 per year by the time you take into a care, account health care costs, et cetera. Seven, 8000 is is very, very common per month. Uh, so that can put a huge financial strain. The other one that I see oftentimes uh, I just had one of these scenarios not too long ago. Husband and wife, the lion's share of their income comes from a pension. And that pension election was elected to be a single life or a single with fifty percent survivor or something like that. And what that means, a single life means, if I have a huge pension and I die, my wife gets nothing per month moving forward. So if you think about it, we're retired, we're good. We have a few hundred thousand dollars that we, you know, it's kind of our extra money to do whatever we want. And then we have social security, but I have this $5,000 a month pension. Good for us. But then I pass away a decade before my spouse. The removal of that $5,000 in monthly cash flow can be catastrophic. So, you know, I think we need to dive a little deeper than just how much money do we have in this giant pot that we get to draw from. There are other aspects that go into the puzzle, and you need to be able to stress test your plan appropriately to uncover what those things are. And oftentimes, people are masquerading as financial planners when in reality, they're just brokers or investors. Um, So I think it's important that you get the advice of both. And a fiduciary. (laughs) Definitely want them to be a fiduciary regardless, yes.
1: Let's talk about budgeting. A lot of people, uh, I mean, they have to budget in retirement. How do you find people do that if they're not used to doing that during their working years?
2: Yeah, I think that one of the common misconceptions is you haven't budgeted your entire life. All of a sudden, you're going to be completely budget-focused and you're going to follow the budget. That's not going to happen. And, and I'm not saying that you're not disciplined. Whoever's listening and going, you know, who is, who is he to tell me how I'm going to live my life? Um, this is just my experience over meeting with literally thousands of people over the years. Most people don't live on a strict budget. But most people believe that when they retire, they need to have some semblance of what they're going to need when they retire. So they come up with a budget with the intention that they're going to stick to it. And the reality is you're probably not going to. So let me give you an easier way to determine what your budget should be. Think about uh, and go look at your checking account. Most of us get paid uh, from our employers you know, once every two weeks or, or twice a month or whatever it might be. Go see what that number is. That's the after-tax number that's hitting your account that you're actually living off of. So don't start adding up, well, I pay $53 in cable, and I pay $23 for this, and I pay $80 a month in fuel prices and or fuel costs. Don't do that because that's very variable. It's going to change often. And things happen. Life happens. So find out how much you actually get deposited into your checking account. Then at the end of each month, see how much is left. If the answer is none then you're living off of that amount of money. If the answer is a lot, then you could actually probably start reducing the amount of money that you need. But that's a good benchmark. Then from that benchmark, let's start finding out what changes could happen when you retire. In other words, in three years after my retirement, my house will be paid off. So that's a drastic reduction in the amount of money that I'll need. Or you know, every six months I pay my real estate taxes in lump sums. So just looking at one month is not really representative of the entire year. And you can do that kind of stuff. But the easiest way to figure out how much you're going to need is just do that simple math. That's how you're living today. If you're happy today, you'll be happy when you retire. And then start adding or subtracting the ancillary, you know, one-off type of stuff. But to, I've had people come in with these two-page lists of, you know, we spend $396 a month on groceries. I mean, come on! Nobody lives their life that way, and I promise you, you're not going to start when you retire. So it's it's while it's it's set in good uh, attributes or it's at least set off in good faith, it probably isn't going to work out that way. I have a weird question; it just popped in my head.
1: Uh, What about vehicles? Like, how do you plan for that? How long you're going to have a vehicle for if you're retired? How long you should get a or you know when you should get a new one? Should people consider that?
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, And, and. you know, that's another one that I that I hear oftentimes. You know, I, I have a business partner at a consulting company that I also own, and, and uh, every time he buys a car, he tells me he's going to keep it for the next 10 years. I don't think he's had a car past three years since I've known him, and I've known him for over 20 years. So why every time do we think that we're going to change our behavior? We're probably not. So I tell you that story to tell you this. If you're the type of person that keeps cars forever, then let's assume that you're actually going to do that and then calculate in what that's going to look like above and beyond the budget that we just talked about. If you're the type of person that gets a car every three years, why would you want to go into retirement and then be miserable because you, that's your thing? You like getting a new car every three years. So let's budget it in accordingly. But to assume that we're after, remember, by the time we retire, most of us are you know, into our 60s. To think that we've had a behavior for 60-some years, and then all of a sudden, with just throwing the word retirement in there, we're going to stop on a dime and change everything, is probably a little bit unrealistic but don't our now, values
1: change over a while though too like you know material things it's... don't become as as important
2: for sure and and let's call that a bonus if that happens then we have more money potentially and, and obviously i'm i'm leaving out some exceptions to this rule but in general i'm saying this is true And let me give you an example josh before you
1: give us that example i'm going to cut you off because we're headed to break we'll continue this conversation
3: After the break, you're listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pickmore when we come back. 7300 or visit aptuswealth.com
0: thanks for listening to the aptus retirement blueprint radio show with josh pick to schedule your complimentary customized planning session give josh a call at 614-364-7300
1: josh i interrupted you uh before the break so you had a good point there and you're giving it a As an example of uh, people's attitudes towards retirement and their habits, um, go ahead and finish your thought.
2: Let me give an example. I've been furloughed from my job. I cannot find another job. I wasn't planning on retiring right now. I don't have as much money as I thought I was going to have to retire. So I'm going to have to be a little tighter with my budget. Of course. Does that mean that you should just, you know, jump off a cliff? No, you shouldn't jump off a cliff. I mean, we'll figure it out. But in general, a good place to start is continuing down the path that you've been on for the most part and then starting to add or reduce from there. Don't start from scratch and say, and I'll tell you how dramatic it is, Diane, and why I'm speaking this way. I've had people come in who are spending consistently $10,000 a month and have been for the last 20 years. Their kids are, you know, let's say they don't even have kids. They're out of the house. So they're, they're not, it's not like that bill's going to go away. And then they come into me with a budget and say, 3000 a month, I'll be good. Well, what have you been doing with the other $7,000 a month? Well, I don't really know. Well, you're obviously spending it somewhere. So unless we can identify where it is, you're living your life on more than you think you are. Do you really want to cut back to 30% of what you're used to living on? That's up to you. I mean, it's not my, I'm a financial planner. I'm not a wizard. I'm just here to share with you what is actually occurring and what will probably occur moving forward. I'm not here trying to be your parent and tell you how much you should spend. So let's be realistic in our approach. But part of my job is to tell you what is realistic.
1: Besides the weekend, you can hear Josh with Bruce Hooley every Monday at 6 p.m. for Money Mondays on 98.9 The Answer. This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint show with Josh Pick. Josh, we know it's a bad idea to take from your retirement savings uh, early before retiring. So new reports say a third of Americans plan to do that just to make ends meet. Let's talk about the repercussions of that and how listeners should absolutely avoid that if
2: they can't. Well, first, I, I certainly don't want to come at this from the wrong angle and say that everybody that's taking money out of their retirement accounts are doing so because they're being foolish. Obviously, retirement is just that. It's a projection down the line that we hope to reach, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that sometimes, and here's that ugly COVID rearing its head again, sometimes we don't have the choice but to take some of the money out of our long-term savings to satisfy immediate necessary needs. So with that, what is the impact though? Uh, Well, let's, let's go back to, and I know I've I've said this uh, a ton of times over the years, but let's, let's revisit that old rule of 72. And for those of you who are hearing this for the first time, the rule of 72 simply states, it's kind of a, a basic financial rule that if you take the number 72 and divide it by an interest rate, it tells you how long it takes your money to double. So for example, if you get a 7.2% rate of return, 7.2% rate of return, if you take 72 divided by 7.2, obviously that's 10. So if you get on average about a 7% rate of return, your money will double every 10 years. So if you're in your 30s or 40s, it's conceivable to say that you have uh, you know, 30 years plus remaining until you retire. So your money will double roughly three times if you get a, an on average about a seven percent rate of return. So if you take ten thousand dollars out of your retirement account today for future needs, you are actually taking out for future for your retirement. You're taking out not ten thousand, but in ten years it'll be twenty, in ten years it'll be forty, in ten more years it'll be eighty. That ten thousand you're taking today is actually probably costing you about eighty thousand. Now that is what it is. However, let's assume that we wait another 10 years before we start saving that money back. Well, we don't have to save 10,000. We we can't just replace the 10,000 at this point because we're behind the eight ball now. So if we wait 10 years to replace it, we have to replace it with 20. And then if we wait 20 years to replace it, we have to replace it with 40 and so on and so forth. So the impact can be quite dramatic. And that's one of the reasons why I think you saw... Um, you know, some of the guidelines from the CARES Act allowing you a little bit more time to replace the money, allowing uh the deferral of the 10% penalty, allowing or not the deferral, but the elimination of the 10% penalty for needs from COVID. Typically, when you re, you pull money out of a retirement account pre-59 and a half, there's a 10% excise tax that was removed. Um, and then also giving folks an extra three uh well, you know, three years to pay back the taxes. And the reason why that was advantageous, if you pull out a year in one tax bracket. But if you can pull out $100,000 but only have to claim roughly $33,000 a year, that's a completely different tax bracket. So I think the goal of that program was to allow people to pull out less from their retirement savings to be able to net the amount that they needed with a lower dollar amount. So the impact of that rule of 72 in the long run was minimized. But you got to try and minimize the amount that you take out overall you got to try and minimize the amount of times, if ever, that you withdraw money from your retirement accounts. Because clearly, just through that very short example, um, and that's, that's if you're in your 30s or 40s. Imagine if you're in your 20s, that would have been doubled again. Well, now we're talking about 160000 for every 10000 that you're pulling out. It can have a, a truly catastrophic and, and life-changing um, impact down the line.
1: You're listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your own planning session and learn new strategies to manage risk, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Josh, this one's for football fans. Rob Gronkowski. A few years ago it came out how he just socks his money away. Uh, He just socks his paychecks. He saves them and lives off endorsements. So, I mean, most of us don't make Gronk money, but you hear about other athletes making millions and just losing everything. So I guess also with people winning the lottery, having a big chunk of money and then losing everything. Let's talk about the psychology because to to the general public that hear about this, you know, Gronkowski, we don't make that money. So it seems really easy to be able to (laughs) sock your paycheck away. (laughs)
2: Sure. Yeah, before you completely discredit everything that, uh, that Diane just said about, about Gronkowski, because, you know, it's easy to sit back and say, well, if I made $10 million a year, I could save nine of yeah, it, too. You know, I could. You cry me a river, you're only living on a million. But I think the concept or the approach is, is accurate. And the approach is this. One, buying items, you know, and I, this is going to sound so, uh, you know, like I'm acting like somebody's father, but buying items will not make you happy. But that doesn't mean that you know I've seen too many people upset riding a jet ski either. So there's a balance in there somewhere, right? I think the concept is saving a percentage of your income consistently and repetitively. And all NFL players, all professional athletes have a very unique set of challenges when it comes to their financial uh, lives, much like that of a, of a lottery winner, like you had mentioned, And that, yes, they're making a tremendous amount of money. But it's over a potentially very short window, and then that money has to last a very long time after that. So I think his approach was, yes, I'm going to live well, but I'm going to save quite a bit so that I can continue to live well for the rest of my life. For most people, it's actually a little bit easier. We don't need to save 70% of our incomes to live well in the long run if we have what most people have in the way of incomes, salary, jobs, you know, engineers, doctors, lawyers, all all the standard occupations, you know, you're a plumber, whatever it is, your income's gonna go up over time. But if we just save a consistent percentage of our income over and over and over again, that retirement picture looks very positive. It also buys us time, meaning that if COVID has shown us anything, it's while we think our jobs might be incredibly secure, There are things that can happen in this world that will derail that idea very, very quickly. And if we don't have something put back, what do we have to do? Well, we either have to sell stuff, borrow money, pull money out of our long-term savings. There's a lot of things that can end up happening. But it's certainly better to have a reserve fund than it is to go deep in debt. Because I'm sure we all know somebody that made some poor decisions, got in a lot of credit card debt, or took out too much debt in some form or fashion, and digging your way out of that hole is a very, very difficult thing to do. So getting ahead is equally as powerful as getting behind can be. And I I do some speaking, Diane, at colleges periodically talking to graduating seniors, particularly in finance uh, majors. And one of the things I try and convey to them, and it's so difficult until you've been on the other side of it, is the power of getting ahead versus the power of getting behind. And I think that's really what this story illustrates, is we need to save consistently so that we get ahead because once we get ahead far enough, it's almost impossible to get caught behind again. So consistently save money. Live within your means. Sure, go, you know, I think my wife says, uh, she says, eat the cake, buy the shoes. Sure, still eat the cake, buy the shoes. But within reason, make sure you're not falling out of the confines of the savings. There's a very famous book called The Richest Man in Babylon. Uh, it's been on a top 10 bestseller for finance over and over again. And the concept is so simple. And that's just save a percentage of your income. So the quicker you can save 15% of your income in some form or fashion, the more bulletproof you become. And Gronkowski was doing just that. He was becoming as bulletproof as he possibly could regardless of what happened in his uh, professional football playing career. Diane, you know one thing about me, and that is that I'm not a a very avid sports fan, but I I have listened to the Gronkowski story. And one thing that I do know about him is that when he was playing for the Patriots, they were actually gonna trade him to Detroit. I don't know if you know the story or not, But he just said, well, you can't trade me to Detroit because now I'm retired because he didn't want to go to Detroit. Mm -hmm. Well, how great to have the ability to say that so quickly because you had saved money. If you do not save money, you might be faced with a choice that you have to make doing something you don't want to do because you don't have a choice. So while money will not certainly buy you happiness, it does buy you choices. And the way that you buy those choices is by systematically investing over time and being consistent and living within your means. You
1: know, I have to give uh, th- the millennial generation credit. They're the most fiscally responsible generation, and I think that's thanks, I guess, to their parents, Gen Xers, correct? Um, but we're seeing more and more kids saving, you know, millennials, um, a lot better than my generation.
2: Yeah, well, hopefully that continues. Uh, and hopefully if, you know, one of the things that I, my son actually told me, on he saw on social media, which I'll give... Uh, for those of you who follow social media, there's a guy uh, named Gary V, who uh, is, uh, I can't pronounce his last name, but he owns a market, a, a media company, and he said, you know, very or something like that. He says, you know, don't buy stuff you don't need to impress people you don't know. And I feel like oftentimes social media makes us do just that. We buy stuff we don't need to impress people we don't know, insert Lamborghini, Ferrari, et cetera. Right. And I have nothing against any of those cars, by the way, but uh, don't put yourself in a financial position that's negative because you're trying to impress people that you don't even know. And I think kids are starting to get a little bit better handle on that. But I would say there was a generation that was very susceptible to that, particularly early on in the social media uh, explosion. It's quite remarkable world that we live in today. And I think that, you know, they're faced with a lot more information. So, you know, my kids included are always talking to me about you know, different opportunities or different uh, ways to start small businesses. or That wasn't even on my radar when I was their age. So there is some positive, but definitely some negative to uh, the Internet and social media today.
1: Besides the weekend, you can hear Josh with Bruce Hooley every Monday at 6 p.m. for Money Mondays on 98.9 The Answer. This is the Aftis Retirement Blueprint show with Josh Pick, and you can catch us every weekend at the same time. You can give Josh a call if you have questions, 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Thanks for spending time with us today. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: You've been listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint radio show with host Josh Pick. Josh helps guide his clients through retirement by managing risk instead of chasing returns. He calls it a blueprint, and you can get started at no cost or obligation. Give the team at Aptus Wealth a call today to schedule your consultation at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Or online at aptuswealth.com. That's aptuswealth.com. To learn strategies to manage risk in the new economy, join us again next weekend right here at 98.9 The Answer.